Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 8 Long Shadow Wheels within wheels, and all of them turning merrily, Sirkan said. I'm absolutely appalled at how little we know about what's going on here. The three of them, refreshed by showers, were in the hotel dining room having a late snack. Anyway, we got friends working for us, Scotty pointed out. I think our British pal did just what he said. He found out that the Golden Mouse was not the sort of place for a couple of American tourists and decided to go there in case we needed help. Rick agreed. Thank heaven he did. But I have a couple of questions, besides the biggest one of all. The biggest one being, where's Chada? Scotty added. Right. Also, I want to know why that motorboat appearing on the scene, flashing a searchlight, made the junk gang jump us. I'm only speculating. Couldn't it have been a police boat on regular patrol? The junk gang would know it, I presume, and they might decide to get us tied up and undercover just in case the police came too close. That's reasonable, Rick agreed. We'll probably never know for sure, and that's as good an answer as any. My next question is, though, who was that Eurasian who got together with Keaton Yates? You don't suppose that was Chada? Scotty suggested. Couldn't have been, Sir Con replied. Chada wouldn't have faded away as soon as we got to shore. I can't imagine who the stranger was, except that he apparently was a friend. But I think it's clear that Canton Charlie... Certainly is not a friend, since our asking for Chada resulted in our being kidnapped or close to it. Rick nodded. Clear as air. Anyway, Bert's prediction was wrong. We didn't get our throats cut at Charlie's. He could have only been too right, Scotty reminded him. If we'd gone there alone and hung around until the mob got wilder, it could have happened. What a crew of cutthroats they were. They were on the way to getting set for a few fights among themselves when we left. Rick glanced at Big Hobart Zircon. Having the professor along probably helped, too. Even the toughest thug would think twice before tackling him. Zircon chuckled. I have to admit, I've found it some advantage to be so sizable. What do you boys think of this strange shadow? Strange is right, Rick stifled a yawn. Keaton Yates thought he was unfriendly, and so did the Eurasian. But he didn't do anything unfriendly, I guess. He just stood in the doorway. Chada's cable said to beware of the long shadow, Scotty remembered. Which is a good reason to think that the man who cast the shadow is an enemy who now knows of our presence in Hong Kong, Zirkanon added. He glanced at his watch. It's getting late. 
The phone call our unknown friend mentioned to Rick doesn't come soon. It'll find me asleep when it does. Same here, Rick agreed. Let's get up to bed. Zircon paid the check and they took the elevator. As they walked down the long corridor to their room, Scotty scratched his head. Mighty funny how everything was arranged for us at Canton Charlie's, wasn't it? We drop in, ask for Chada, wait a while, get a note, and then walk right into the arms of a reception committee. That's a damn fine organization. They had plenty of time to get the junk ready for us, Rick pointed out. We sat in Charlie's and cooled our heels for a long while. We should have had our own knives a foot long, Zircon smiled. Then we could have given ourselves a manicure, like the Portuguese who left right after we arrived. He put his key in the lock and pushed the door open. Rick had a confused impression of wild sounds, then something crashed into him and he landed flat on his back. As he scrambled to his feet, plaster showered down on him, and his ear separated the sounds. From within the room, a voice screamed, Watch out! Take cover! There was a blurred racket, as though a giant was running a stick along a monster picket fence at jet speed. Scotty was yelling something and Zircon bellowing with rage. Then the thunderous stitching noise stopped. All three of them started into the room at the same time, and Rick reached the door first. It was dark in the room, but in the faint light from the hallway he saw two figures struggling. He acted without thought. On the dresser just inside the door he had left a big flashlight. He grabbed it, jumped into the fray, and brought it down on the head of the man on top. The man slumped. With a cat-like twist, the man who had been underneath wriggled free. Rick started to say, What's going on? And then an open hand drove into his face and pushed him backwards into Scotty and Zircon. The three of them fought for balance as Rick's assailant ran to the window and leapt out onto the fire escape and was gone. Scotty snapped on the light just as the man Rick had slugged staggered to his feet blinking. He was a medium height with a thin dark face. He was dressed like a seaman and apparently he was a Eurasian. Black eyes blazed at the three of them. Shut that blasted door and bolt it, the man commanded. Zircon bellowed. Don't be giving us orders. Explain now who... I'm Carl Bradley, the man said. Rick swallowed. Of the two men in the room, he had lowered the boom on the wrong one. Scotty shut the door and threw the bolt. I've got to talk fast, Bradley said. The hotel people will be up here in a few seconds, and I don't want them to find me. It would mean too many explanations, and the police would want a statement I'd rather not have to give. He straddled a chair. I suppose you've guessed I was the Eurasian with the young Englishman. It was just luck I picked him up, and more luck that we found your rickshaw coolies. Longshadow's men had you, and Longshadow was watching. That's why I faded when you got ashore. I intended following him for once instead of being followed myself. About the only thing I don't know about him is his secret headquarters. I didn't think I'd be able to get here, so I whispered to one of you that I'd phone. Well, Long Shadow led me here, up the fire escape. He came by a rather roundabout route, stopping while he ate. I suspected it was your room, but I didn't know for sure. He came in, I crouched on the fire escape. Didn't know what would happen, of course. 
and we heard voices. I say we. He didn't know I was here, of course. He hauled a Schmeitzer machine pistol from under his coat and slipped a clip in. There was just enough light for me to see the outline. It's distinctive. A queer little shudder zipped down Rick's spine. A Schmeitzer? It was a pistol known as a burp gun. It sprayed slugs like a hose did water. No wonder he hadn't recognized the sound. He kept his eyes on Bradley, intent on what the slender Yannick man had to say. Yelled out a warning, Bradley went on, and jumped through the window at him. Didn't dare take the time to draw my gun. I kept yelling, hoping one of you would give me a hand. He's wiry as a thuggy bandit. Only I got a lump on the head instead. I'm so sorry, Rick muttered. Damage is done. He's gone. Now I'll have to locate him again if I can. Meanwhile, write this down quickly. I think I hear voices coming down the hall. Scotty whipped a pencil and an envelope from inside his pocket. See the Council General. I've talked with him. He will give you a rubber boat and a Nansen bottle I picked up. Outfit for the trail and have plenty of weapons. Fly to Chongqing and check in with the Council there. Ask him to give you a reliable guide. You're going to course Lincoln. That's in Tibet. He spelled out the name. Jada has gone on ahead. I'll follow. That's where the heavy water is coming from. I'm pretty sure. Charter will check up. You can help him. Then make tests to be sure it's really heavy water. Maybe you could do something about the source of the stuff. You'll have to see when you get there. I've got part of the story about what's being done with the water, but not all of it. There definitely were voices outside now. The burp gun had brought the hotel people. In a moment, there was a hammering on the door. Bradley walked to the window. You can let them in after I've gone. Any questions? Quickly now. What's the Nansen bottle for? Circlin demanded. I don't know. I only know that Long Shadow bought five of them. Bradley threw a leg over the windowsill and grinned at them. Leave me out of any story you tell. I need a free hand for the next few days. And the less the police know about me, the better for all of us. He hesitated at the, as the pounding of the door grew louder, then a key grated in the lock. I tell you this, he said softly, you could forget about an industrial plant. This is something else we're up against. And then he was gone. Open the door, Zircon said. For the first time, Rick saw the big scientist gripped his right arm just below the elbow. A red, sodden handkerchief balled in his left hand. You're wounded! He jumped to the scientist's side. Just a scratch. But it saved our lives. Tell you about it later. Open up, Scotty. Scotty threw the door open and the night clerk, three Chinese policemen, and a half dozen coolies piled in. What's going on here? The clerk demanded. What happened? Nothing serious, Sirkan said calmly. There was evidently a bandit in our room. We opened the door and he fired on us with his submachine gun. Then, when he saw he hadn't killed us, he ran away. It wasn't a very convincing story. Rick saw suspicion on the faces of the hotel people. He threw in his nickel's worth. What kept you so long? We've been trying to phone. He had a hunch the switchboard coolie was one of those in the room. Probably everyone on duty had raced up. We heard nothing downstairs, the night clerk said. 
The floor coolie came down to get us. He took his time about it. Why was your door locked? Zircon tried hard to look sheepish. I guess we must have bolted it in the confusion. And then when you knocked, we tried to open it. It was a few seconds before we realized the bolt had been thrown, and the door couldn't be opened unless the bolt was withdrawn. The confounded thing stuck. Why didn't you yell? One of the policemen demanded. Maybe because you were yelling so loud yourselves you couldn't hear us, Zircon said mildly. You were making lots of noise. The clerk frowned. The manager will have to hear about this. I doubt he will believe your story. He may even ask you to pay damages. Zircon drew himself up to his full height. The day we pay damages for the privilege of being shot at in this disreputable dive you fatuously call a hotel will be the day that Hong Kong sinks under the sea like Atlantis. Now have the good sense to clear out and let us get some sleep. The clerk's face was scarlet. Rick tried to hide a grin. You'll have to make a formal statement to the police, the clerk stabbed. In the morning, in the morning we intend to see the American Council. You will hear more about this incident than you expect, my dear sir. Now clear out. We need our sleep. This has been most unsettling. One of the policemen pointed to Zircon's blood-stained sleeve. But you need medical attention, sir. I happen to be a doctor, Zircon said. That was true enough. Mind you, he was a doctor of science and not of medicine, but he was a doctor. You expect to treat yourself? The clerk asked incredulously. Nothing to it, Zircon boomed. A trifle. Why, why, once when hunting in Africa, I had my back clawed by a lion. Stitched those wounds up myself. The clerk looked like he was on the verge of a stroke. You couldn't possibly treat your own back, he almost screamed. That's impossible. How could you do that? He turned around so he could see what he was doing, Scotty said. Good night, all you. He shepherded them out the door and closed it. For a moment, there was excited conversation from outside, and the clerk, the policeman, and the coolies retreated back down the hall. They'll be back, Zircon said wearily, but not before morning, I hope. Rick looked at Scotty. He turned around so he could see what he was doing. Sewed up your own back, Scotty jibed. Professor... You told that nice man a fib. Great big juicy fib, Zircon said gravely. Do I wash out my mouth with soap or do I get a medal? Medal, the boys said together and laughed heartily. Whatever got into you, Rick asked the scientist. Zircon stripped off his coat and rolled up his sleeve. He was so pompous and serious I couldn't resist. Besides, if I had been serious, we never would have gotten rid of them. Here. Rick, I'm going to need antiseptic and a gauze compress for this. The boys looked at the wound. As Zircon had said, it was trivial. The slug had made a neat furrow across the surface of his skin, just deep enough to cause a lot of blood flow. The wound was already clotting. As Rick bandaged the scientist's brawny arm, Zircon said, I recoiled instinctively when Bradley yelled, but not far enough. One of the slugs nicked me. But those heavy-caliber weapons, like our Service 45, will knock a man down anywhere they hit him. 
This one spun me around and I piled into the two of you. I think that's what saved us all. I didn't even know what was happening, Rick said. Neither did I, Scotty agreed. I've seen Schmeissers before. I've never heard one fired until now. And let us hope we don't have to hear it again, Sirkan added. When Rick finished bandaging his arm, the professor went to his suitcase, opened it, and drew out a folded map. I'm curious about Course Lincoln. It's a new name to me. This map covers China and part of Tibet. Let's see if we can find it. After a long search, Scotty whistled. Here it is, and look where it is. Course Lincoln was a tiny dot in the vastness of the mountains just beyond the Chinese border at about 95 degrees east longitude and 32 degrees north latitude. No other town was noted on the map in that area, but high mountains were, and so were rivers, and Chada was there alone. At least Bradley had not mentioned any companion who traveled with the Hindu boy. We'll need to outfit completely. Food, warm clothing, sleeping bags, and the rest. And we'll need a rifle for Rick. We could get American rifles here. Also, I think we had better put in a small supply of ammunition beyond what we brought. For a short while, they speculated on the trip and on the many things Bradley had left unsaid. It was unfortunate that they couldn't have had a few moments longer, but Rick could see that his presence in the room would have needed explaining since he hadn't traveled up the elevator. It was better for him to disappear. Before getting into bed, they went to the door and opened it. Across the hall, Longshadow's burp gun had made a fine mess. Plaster hung in patches, and the lathe behind was broken and splintered. Fortunately, the room opposite was a storage closet, so no one else had been in the line of fire. Rick looked at the dozens of holes and shook his head. If we'd had been right in the doorway, we would now be so full of holes they could use us for mosquito netting. If the holes weren't so big. He looked at the other two and added, I'm beginning to think that Long Shadow doesn't really like us. Chapter 9 The Trail to Course Lincoln Sing Lam Chong dug heels into the flanks of his mule and trotted back to where Zircon, Scotty, and Rick were jogging along on their respective mounts. Good place to make lunch in about ten minutes. That's fine, Sing. Zircon said. We could use lunch. The scientist looked down with distaste at his horse, a big hammer-headed black with lines of a plow beast. Sitting on this thing is about as comfortable as a wooden sled. Rick sympathized. His own nag, a pin-eared Chinese pony of a peculiar mouse-gray color and no particular gait, he just waddled along, swaying from side to side, making his rider saddle sore. Sing saluted and went back to the head of the column, which was made up of pack mules, each led by a Chinese bearer. There were four of the pack animals, each laden with the party's gear. He certainly knows his trail, Scotty commented. A good thing, too, Rick said. The camping places are few and far between. I wish Course Lincoln were nearer. The party was about ten days out of Hong Kong, high in the mountain ranges that formed the backbone of South Asia. 
Since leaving the more civilized parts of China, they had trekked through alternate valleys and mountain passes, making good time in the valleys, but slowing to a snail's pace in the mountains. Sometimes the trail was wide enough for the three of them to ride abreast. Sometimes it clung to the mountainside with scarcely room for a single horse or mule. But Singh, leading the way, had a knack of picking the easiest route. The Chinese guide was a gift from heaven. The spindrifters had checked in at the American consulate in Chongqing, as Bradley had instructed them, and the consul had offered the loan of one of his own staff. Singh, normally a clerk at the consulate, had been born and brought up in the western reaches of outer Xinjiang province, and he knew the area from wide travels with his father, a Chinese border police officer. Although he had never been to Course Lincoln, he had been close to it. While Singh called out in Chinese to the bearers, they followed him into a sort of pocket in the mountainside. Scotty, who was slightly ahead of Rick and Zircon, turned. We got company for lunch. There's another party ahead of us here. In a moment, the three Americans were greeting a portly Chinese who rose to meet them. Howdy, Mr. Ko, Rick said cordially. We were wondering when we would catch up with you again. Worthington Ko smiled and bowed. We will doubtless meet many times until our paths separate. Please dismount and join me. My bearers have a good cooking fire you are welcome to use. Ko was a textile merchant they had overtaken on the trail a short distance out of Chongqing. Since then, the two parties had passed and repassed each other several times. Ko had three mules in addition to the one he rode and two bearers. The mules carried only light packs. On the return trip, he had told them, they would be laden with Tibetan textiles. He was heading for the famous monastery of Rangan Lo to buy embroidery from the Buddhist monks. Eventually, the embroidery would find a market in Europe. The three spin drifters got down stiffly from their horses and found seats among the rocks next to the merchant. He smiled sympathetically. You are stiff. These trails are very poor, and one must travel them many times before one gets used to them. He took off his thick horn-rimmed glasses and polished them on a scrap of silk. After twenty years of this, I still find myself bent with weariness at the end of the day. Singh busied himself with getting food ready. The spindrift bearers unpacked utensils and their own rations of rice and dried meat. Ko rose from his rocky seat and rearranged the long, flowing silk coat he wore. I must be off. With your permission, I will proceed slowly, however, so that you will overtake me before nightfall. Of course, Zircon said. May I ask why? Ko's nearsighted eyes peered at the rifles carried in saddle sheaths on each of the three horses, and at Singh's shotgun. I hope to take advantage of your weapons. By nightfall we should reach Lihan Huang, which is a sort of crossroad. It marks the start of the Lincoln country. The Lincolns are unlikely to attack a well-armed party of eight, but they delight in robbing a small party like mine. For that reason I usually manage to find a larger party to which to attach myself when entering the Lan region. He smiled. The armament you carry for hunting barals will serve admirably to keep the Lincolns at a distance. 
The Spindrift Party had been warned that the tribe known as Lenkins were dangerous to travelers. We'll be delighted to have you join us, Zircon assured him. Rick was about to suggest that the portly Chinese merchant wait until after the Spindrifters had eaten so they could travel together, but he thought better of it. Singh called out that lunch was ready, and they took mess kiss to the fire and loaded them up with rice covered with a savory sauce, canned beef, and hot, crisp water chestnuts. As Rick sighed with gratitude over the first tasty mouthful, Scotty looked at the vanishing co-party and mused. I wonder how come he speaks English so perfect. Singh overheard this and grinned. No reason for surprise. Many Chinese are educated in American and English colleges, both in China and in other countries, like myself. I'm a graduate of Oberlin. All right, I guess that explains that, Scotty admitted. Worthington's a really strange name for a Chinese, though, huh, Singh? The guide nodded. It is, but I don't think it is his real one. Many Chinese take Western first names, especially those who trade with Westerners. That is because our old names are often too hard to say or remember. Have you ever met Ko before? Sir Khan asked. You traveled pretty widely in this region. I thought you might have come across him before this. I don't think so, Singh replied. But this is a very big country, and there are many travelers like him. Singh was certainly right in saying that there were many travelers. Although the merchants like Ko were a minority, there were families of Tibetans walking along the trail, laden with their possessions, heading for goodness knew where. There were groups of horsemen, dressed in quilted clothes of the mountain country, and peaked felt hats. Such men usually were armed with old-fashioned muskets, and carried forked rests in which to lay the musket barrels for support while firing. There were parties of Chinese, sometimes on foot, sometimes with trains of mules or yaks, the ox-like Tibetan beasts of burden. Frequently, especially in valley country, small villages lay near the trail. Often there were herders with large flocks of sheep. Although the trail slanted up and down from valley to mountain pass and back again, the way led constantly higher toward the white-capped peaks that had been called the backbone of the world. Beyond them, many hundreds of miles away, lay Nepal and India. It was always cool now, and the Americans and Singh wore windbreakers and woolen sweaters. The bearers donned padded long coats. At night, the sleeping bags were comfortable. Without them, though, the Americans would have been chilled through and through. Make a guess, Singh, Rick requested. How many more days until we get to Course Lincoln? Singh counted on his fingers. With fortune, maybe we'll get there late day after tomorrow. It depends on the trails. Zircon sipped steaming tea standing up. He was too saddle-sore to sit down. Where do we camp tonight? A mile or two past Lan Huang. I know a good water supply there. The bears were standing around waiting patiently, already finished with cleaning up and packing, except for the Americans' teacups. They downed the last swallow of tea, handed the cups to Singh, then swung him to the saddle again. I hope Singh is right about getting there day after tomorrow, Rick said as he shifted uncomfortably, in his chafing seat, as he called it. 
This hay burner is no luxury liner. Ditto, Scotty agreed. Besides, I'm anxious to see Chada. Hobart Zircon nodded. I hope whatever we find is worth the discomfort of this trip. He grinned. At any rate, it's a new experience for all of us. I don't think I'll thank Bradley for it, though, Rick added. Well, let's get moving. He dug his heels into the pony's flanks and moved into position behind Singh. Scotty and Zircon fell back to bring up the rear. Although they were reasonably sure no one would attack them, Zircon felt it was best to have a rear guard, and they had taken turns at the end of the column. In spite of saddle soreness, Rick looked at the view with appreciation as the trail suddenly topped a rise. Far below spread a lush valley, and beyond that were the last peaks they would have to cross before they came to Course Lincoln. Chapter 10 The Ambush at Lan Huang it was late afternoon before the spindrift caravan left the rocks of the mountain pass and reached better ground. They paused on top of a small pyramid-shaped hill while one of the bearers retired the pack on his mule. Zircon looked at the formation with interest. An old volcanic cone, he pointed out. Notice the regularity of the slope? We're in a kind of saucer that once was a live crater. Rick could see it clearly once the scientist mentioned its volcanic origin. The saucer was perhaps a dozen yards across, and its edge was marked by a definite rim. Whoever made the trail apparently had decided to go right up and across the hill instead of pushing through the dense underbrush at its base. In a moment they started again, the mules picking their way carefully down the hillside. At the bottom of the hill was a rather dense forest, and beyond that the valley. Singh called back over his shoulder. Lan Huang is just past the woods. We'll meet Ko there, I think. I just saw the last of his mules going into the woods. Rick stood up in his stirrups and rubbed his raw and aching thighs. The three had ridden horseback before, but not to any great extent. And the long trail was a hard initiation. He noted that the sun was dropping behind the western peaks, and he knew from experience it would be dark in a few minutes. The great western range was so high in the air that it brought night by blocking out the sunlight, surprisingly early in the afternoon. Then he rode into the forest and gloom closed in around him, and it got cold. He zipped up his windbreaker and reached for his gloves. He saw that the trail through the forest twisted and turned to miss the big hardwood trees, so that sometimes he could see only the mule in front of him. Zircon and Scotty at the end of the column were out of sight most of the time. It grew darker rapidly. Rick reached into his saddlebag and drew out a flashlight, tucking it into his jacket pocket where it would be handy. When he could see the sky overhead, it appeared dark gray, and he knew that night was close at hand. Presently he found himself peering through the gloom even to see the mule directly in front of him. When they got out of the woods, it would be lighter, he hoped. Then, as he stood up again to ease his saddle burns, the woods around them were suddenly alive with gunfire. His pony reared and would have bolted if he had not gripped the reins tight and jerked him to a stop. He caught a glimpse of orange flashes in the gloom, and from ahead, he heard a sudden scream from one of the mules. Scotty's voice rose in a yell. Turn around! Turn! 
Get back out of the woods to the hilltop! Rick saw his friend's strategy at once. On the hilltop, they could fight off almost a battalion. He pulled his quivering pony around on the narrow trail and yelled at Singh. The guy's voice came in answer. Coming! We're coming! A slug whined past Rick's ear and slapped into a tree trunk. He tried desperately to get the rifle out of his saddle sheath while controlling his fear-crazed pony. Then he heard the roar of Singh's shotgun. There was no sound of firing from Scotty and Zircon, and he guessed they were having trouble with their mounts, too. None of them was horseman enough to fire from the saddle. Rick stopped trying to get the rifle free and bent low, urging his pony on. Behind him, he heard the pound of mule hooves and in the woods on both sides the rustle of underbrush as the attackers tried to keep up. There were fewer shots now, at least, thank goodness. In a few moments, the racing column broke out of the woods and into better light. Ahead, Rick saw Zircon and Scotty go over the rim of the volcanic hill and within seconds saw them reappear on foot, rifles in hand. Come on! Scotty yelled. We'll cover you! Zircon's big forty-five ninety spoke with a decisive slam, and Rick heard the heavy slug crash through the brush. Then the mules ahead of him topped the hill, and in a moment he was out of the saddle too, rifle in hand. He joined Scotty and Zircon in time to see Singh and the other two bearers race up the hill. One mule was missing. Hold your fire, Scotty said. There's nothing to shoot at unless we see muzzle flashes. Singh jumped from the mule's saddle and took command. He spoke rapidly to the bearers, who at once forced the mules to their knees and then over on their sides. They won't get hit this way, Singh explained. We already lost one mule. He reloaded his shotgun, face worried. Did you see anyone? Rick asked. No, but I'm afraid for Cole. We had almost caught up when they started shooting. I saw one of his mules right ahead of me. Let's hope they found some sort of cover, Zircon said. He glanced at the sky. It'll be completely dark in a few minutes. Zing, scatter your men around the rim. They can keep watch, even if they don't have rifles. The rest of us will take up positions at equal distances from each other around the rim. Scotty adjusted his rifle sights. Afraid of an attack after dark, Professor? I am. This attack probably was time to catch us in the woods in the dark. We're fortunate that Scotty's memory is good. Suggesting the hill was a great idea. Well, I knew we'd be cut to pieces in the woods, Scotty said. Rick surveyed the terrain anxiously. Singh was posting his men. Good thing they're not very expert shots. They took us completely by surprise. Scotty walked to the rim and found a position that suited him. Not much danger there hitting us, except at point-blank range, if their guns are like some of the ones we've seen around here. Zircon found a position, too, and Rick searched for one that he liked. He finally chose a place where a broken rock pile would give him cover. It was now so dark he could scarcely see. There were plenty of noises down the hill, but no firing. Rick waited. Rifle thrust out before him. Were they gathering for a rush? And who were they? Then he heard the noise of a dislodged pebble on the hillside below. He strained to see, but it was too dark. And he thought, if only I had my infrared lights and glasses. 
They were in one of the packs. I was so stupid not to have thought of them at once. Now he didn't dare leave his position until he found out what was below. There was a sound of a body sliding over low brush, almost directly beneath him. He tensed. Then, as an afterthought, he reached into his pocket and brought out a flashlight. With it, he thought he could blind the attacker and at the same time get a shot. He put his thumb on the button and waited. In a moment, a figure loomed out of the darkness only a few feet away. Rick sucked in his breath and half-lifted his rifle for a one-handed shot. At the same moment, he pressed the flashlight button. The beam shot squarely into the face of Worthington Coe. Rick put his rifle down quickly to extend a helping hand to the merchant, and then he noticed something. If you direct a light into the eyes of a man whose pupils are dilated by darkness, there's a definite reaction. If the eyes are normal, the pupils contract. One of Coe's did. Rick saw them, magnified by the thick glasses. The other pupil didn't change at all. As the fact registered, Rick saw something else. In one of Coe's hands was a grenade. In the same instant that Rick grabbed up his rifle and swung it like a club, he guessed the answer. Coe was the Chinese with the glass eye.